the fourth Sunday of Advent is Advent love. And all of us, everyone longs for love. Whether it's love in friendship or love in family or love in a relationship, we all long for love. And sometimes, and wrongly so this time of year, we measure love based on what we receive. I, I've heard this over and over again on Christmas. It's not in my home. But in many places after Christmas, some will be commenting and saying, well, you know, their gift wasn't as good as my gift. It wasn't as thoughtful as my gift. And somehow it's all about what I received. And the measure of love is all about that. And yet within our heart, there's a longing for a greater love. A love that can't be satisfied by any object or by any person. Can't be satisfied by them. Because the love that we have even for each other one day will be gone. One day it won't be here. One day, even if you're married, your spouse will pass on. Your parents will pass on. God forbid, but this does happen, your child will pass away. And that love will have an end, an end point. And you will grieve the loss of that love and only have the memories of that to sustain you. But there is a love that is eternal, a love that never ends, a love that cannot be separated. It's God's love. You see, love doesn't simply just come from God. It's not just something he gives to us. God actually is love in his very essence and being. So the love that we have from God is actually not just something that he grants us. It's an overflow of his essential nature and character. When God is granting us his love, we get a piece of his very nature and character granted to us. That's what love is. God is love, meaning in very essence and being, that's who he is. And so when we receive his love, we receive essentially revelation of his divine nature to us. Is that not a great concept? We, in essence, are receiving the revelation of God's divine nature to us directly. So hear this, very familiar words from John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And this is Christmas. This is Christmas, that God loved the world. Now this isn't surprisingly, or surprising because the world is so big, but rather because the world is so bad. The vastness of God's love shouldn't surprise us because of the greatness of the world, how big it is. It's big, a lot of people. But it should surprise us because of how bad the world is, that God will save anyone. That we ourselves don't deserve his love. That we've chosen to rebel against him. That we've chosen to walk away. That our sin separates us from God and our problem is so often we compare ourselves to what we read in the paper or hear on the news or see on our phones. And we think, wow, that's a pedophile. That's not me. Wow, that's someone who's, you know, they're, they're a murderer. That's not me. Man, they've stolen millions of dollars from someone. That's not me. And we think, well, those are sinners. And we lose sight of the fact that the Bible says that all of us have sinned. That sin isn't doing as bad a thing as you could do. Sin is that in no way do you glorify God the way you should. 
that you fall short, we all fall short of the glory of God. And so we're all equally sinners, deserving of separation from God and his wrath. And yet God so loved us that he bridged that gap, that he sent his son. And it says this in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why the angel can say to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And the love he offers us isn't a love that he's returning to us. It's not like we've loved God and God's returning love. It's a love that he offers us always and only first. That we can then return to him. We can only love God because God has first loved us. Now this morning, if you have a hard time with that, if you have a hard time believing that you were separated from God's love, if you have a hard time believing that God's not reciprocating your love, but that God grants you love first, and then after God has granted you love, you're able to respond to that, I'd suggest today that means you're not saved. You're not saved. You're not a Christian. If you don't believe you're in need of a Savior... This morning, you can't know Jesus. I mean, you might know of Jesus. You might know about Jesus, but you actually can't know him. You actually don't know who he is. Well, in John 13, the text will be on the screen, Jesus talks about the full extent of his love. And I want to turn to that passage now. John 13, the word of God says this. It was just before Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It says it's just before Passover. This is highly debated. If you want to read higher critical things, this is one of the areas of Scripture that's debated. What is John talking about? Is John here in this moment talking about the fact that Passover is about to happen and they're about to separate it, celebrate it at this dinner? Maybe. That's a possibility. Some people put this dinner as the night before the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper isn't mentioned here, the Last Supper. So some people say, this happened on the Wednesday night. Some people say, this happened on the Thursday night. Some people think that Passover, because of the way John writes, happened on the Friday night. Actually, the Passover was celebrated as Jesus was crucified. The Synoptic Gospels seem to indicate that it happened on the Thursday night. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what do we do here with John when we have this dinner, where there's no mention of the Lord's Supper, that's mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, but not mentioned here. Well, let me offer just a few brief explanations. I do not plan in any way to do this comprehensively. But a couple of things. One, the way the Jewish people counted days is important. The way the Jewish people counted days is important. Because the day started when the sun set until the next sunset. So from sunset till sunset, we go sunrise, right? We think of the day as sunrise. We, go, we actually go in the way we think of midnight to midnight. But often we think of the next day as when I get up and the sun is rising, right? That's how we think of it, because we're asleep typically, you should be, when the day is turning, right? Um, but that's not how they thought. Sunset to sunset was how the Jewish people thought. One of the reasons that some of this is, is debated is because later on in John, in John 18, 28, the Jewish leaders say that they cannot celebrate the Passover festival um, if they're unclean and they're in the midst of crucifying Jesus. And John 19, verse 14 and 31, it talks about the day of preparation. And in John 14, it talks about in the week of the festival or the celebration of the, not the festival, of the, of the Passover. 
So some people would suppose, because that happens after John 13, this is chronological now to the end of John. Not all of the Gospels are chronological in nature. John is thematic in the first 12 chapters. So first 12 chapters of John is thematic, but verses 13 through to the end is chronological as well as themes through it. Those are sometimes important things to note in Scripture as you walk through that. Um, that there's, sometimes it's grouped in themes and sometimes it's grouped in chronology. And this, of course, in John is the third Passover that's mentioned. That's why we think of Jesus' ministry as three years. This is three of three. And so really quickly here, as we come here, how do I sort that all out? Well, one, um, I do think this is likely the Passover. That's where I would lean. I do that thinking that this is, the Passover was more than just a night, though the night was the Passover meal. There was a Passover festival. It was a celebration that lasted much longer. When they're talking about the day of preparation, never was that language used for the Passover. It was always used for the Sabbath, which was their day of rest. And so I believe when they're talking about the day of celebration, or the, the, the preparation, the, the day of preparation, that they're talking about the Friday or the Thursday from uh, sunset until the Friday at sunset before the Sabbath, which is Friday sunset through the Saturday sunset. So I think that was what's going on here. Um, and as they're talking about not being unclean, they've, I believe, already celebrated the Passover meal, but they're still involved in the Passover festival. And so they want to continue in the festivities. And in doing so, when they're there early Friday morning, say, we want to continue, because remember, the Passover day would have been from Thursday night at sunset through to the next day. They're saying, we don't want to miss this. We don't want to miss this. And so I believe this is actually the Passover, though the Lord's Supper is not mentioned here directly in this passage in terms of the cup and the bread in the way that it is in the Synoptic Gospels. There you go. Some of you are like, I didn't even know that was a part of anything, but now you do. Um, so Jesus says, it's just before the Passover festival, and he says, he knew his hour had come. He knew this was it. He knew the time was near. He was going to leave this world. He was going to return to the Father. So he knew he had accomplished what God had called him to accomplish. And then it says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He says, now that he's loved, notice who he's loved, his own. It defines who he's loved. He's loved those who belong to him. We are distinct as believers. We are distinct as believers. So Jesus here a couple times, he says, I'm going to leave the world. Right? So you have to ask yourself, what does he mean when he says the world? Because the term world is used in different ways in scripture. Sometimes it's meant for the ideology of the day. Sometimes it's meant for the world itself. Sometimes it's meant for the people in the world. So the world meaning nature. Sometimes it's meant for the world meaning people. But here he's talking about he's leaving the physical world. He's going to ascend to the Father soon. He knows that his time is done. And having loved his own who were in the world, those that he's called to himself, he's going to love them to the end. Well, here's a couple of things. One, we are distinct as believers. John 17, if I have given them, I have given them your world, your word, sorry, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Jesus says, when I've claimed you to be myself, you are no longer of this world. Now, God has love in a variety of ways. He expresses his love in a variety of ways. God has a general love. So God has created everyone. Every human being on the planet, whether Christian or not, has been created by him. That's part of God's general love. God grants people, Christian and non, joy, pleasure, kindness, finances. God is the one, and he, he does it on believers and non-believers alike. I mean, 
Some of the wealthiest people in the world are not believers. They have wealth. And if God has made everything and gives everything, owns everything and gives everything, God, in essence, has granted them that wealth. The ability to make it and to have it. Nothing's outside of his sovereign hand and will. And so God graciously and lovingly grants for everyone on the planet joy, kindness, pleasure. The rain falls on my property as well as my neighbors who don't know him. The sun shines on my property as well as my neighbors. It's not like I look out some days when we need rain and it's raining on my property and no one else's. Right? Oh, Lord, right here. My, my flowers are dry. Right? And it's not like when it's raining outside and I plan to go to the beach, I'm like, Lord, I just want one sunny spot. Right? Amy and I don't drive to the beach with the kids and go, look, there's our spot. The Lord's granted sunshine when it's raining everywhere else. That's, that's not what happens. That's, that's not how the Lord works. If it's raining at the beach, typically it's raining at the beach. Now, someone's going to come and tell me some story, and I'll listen to it later, but it's fine. It's all good. But God grants a specific love to his children, to those who are believers. He forgives us. Non-believers can't be forgiven. He forgives us, and he grants us his righteousness. That's justification. God actually grants us the righteousness of Christ. That's how we're able to stand before the Father one day in judgment. The Son, when, when we're before the Father in judgment, God will see the Son, not us. He grants us forgiveness. Is that not great news? We are forgiven in Christ. He adopts us into his family for anyone who's a believer. For anyone who comes to God looking for the hope in Christ. He forgives us and adopts us into his family. We're now children of God. We're now daughters of God. Sons of God were adopted into his family. I mean, if what we got was salvation, that would be amazing. But we get more than salvation. We get adoption into his family. God lets us in so that we can call him Father. Anytime. He grants us eternity. Eternity. The glory of heaven. Where there'll be no pain. And no suffering, no disease, no sin. Where you will never experience temptation again, ever. I can't even imagine a place like that. I mean, we experience temptation so much. What will it be like to be in a place where it's gone? What will it be like to be in a place where we never hear the word cancer? Or heart attack? Or Alzheimer's? It'll just be gone forever. He grants us justification, forgiveness of sin. He grants us adoption into his family. He grants us eternity, heaven, and he grants us his presence. God is in us. His spirit is in us. And in glory, in our resurrected bodies for all of eternity, we have direct access to the Father continually. There's no light in heaven because God himself is its light. And so that's what he offers us. As believers. That's why scripture could say these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You see our faith will be sight. Our hope will be realized. But love will last forever. It will simply last forever. And because of God's love. We can be justified, forgiven, adopted into his family. Spend eternity with him. And know his presence forever. And he says it's till when? Jesus says, I'm going to love you to what? 
to the end. Do you see that? To the end. To the end of his life. To the end of our lives. To the end of eternity. And eternity doesn't end. He says, I'm going to love you comprehensively and completely to the end. Well, verse 2, the evening meal was in progress. The devil uh, had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God. He was returning to God. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin. He began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So, of course, in the Middle East, it's dusty. It wore sandals. Your feet would be disgusting. I mean, it's like our feet in the summer. You could think your feet aren't disgusting in the summer. But if you wear sandals all summer, they are. In fact, I remember shortly after we got married, and I would go visit seniors in the summer, and I'd go with sandals, and I'd kick my sandals off, and I'd go into people's homes. And sometimes I was with Amy, and Amy would say, your feet, you, they shouldn't be here. Like, they're awful. And I'd go into the washroom, and I didn't have sciatica then, and I would turn on the sink and try to wash my feet in their sink. And, oh, no, it wasn't bad. It's a sink. Like, I washed my hands in there. My feet weren't that. Some of you looked at me like I just sinned. I mean, it wasn't sinning. I, I, I just washed my feet and, you know, scrubbed them. And, and uh, you know, then they smelled better. I'd come out. And then, and then Amy said, maybe you should bring a pair of socks with you. And I'm like, for what? And she goes, well, like, don't wear them with your sandals. That won't help, because that's what I started to do. She's like, I know some of you do that now, but those of us that are, like, older think, that's weird, man. Why do you have socks in your sandals with your sandals? Like, that's, that's not a fashion statement. That's weird. And, um, and, so, and so I would put socks on and go to people's homes after, you know, you get there, um, you take your sandals off, you flip the socks on quick, and you're fine. And sometimes you leave the sandals outside because of their problem, right? And um, so, so there you are, hanging out. And so Jesus is there, his disciples, right? Their, their feet just stink. They're reclining at a table, meaning that their left arm is bent over on large pillows. They're all facing each other with their feet extended beyond them, and no one's washed anyone's feet. And normally, the lowliest servant in a household, the one that was at the lowest point, so you're not just a servant, you're the lowest servant, their job was to wash everyone's feet because everyone's feet would stink. Notice what it says in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That he came from God and was going back to God. So here's Jesus knowing in full knowledge that all power belongs to him. What would you act like right now if you knew that all power, all power, every principality and authority was under you right now? All power belonged to him. What would you do right now if you could speak anything you wanted into existence? If you could call legions of angels to your side? If you could eliminate any evil you wanted to? If you could get rid of anyone you didn't like with just a word? He knows all power is his. He gets up. He takes off his outer cloak, and he wraps it around his waist. They're watching this. He fills a basin with water, and he takes that which he's taken off, and he just begins to wash their feet. God the Son, all power his, washing feet. 
That's not what most of us would do with all power, is it? But it's exactly what Jesus did. Well, he comes to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replies, you do not realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And I love Peter. Peter's just like, Peter, Jesus, you're not going to the cross. Right? That's not happening. I know more. Right? And now, Jesus, no, you're not washing. No, there's no way. You're not touching these feet. Jesus, this is way outside of the box. You're not doing it. And then Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you can't have nothing to do with me. Unless I cleanse you. Unless you experience my cleansing touch, unless you experience my cleansing power, you can have nothing to do with me. And what's Peter's response? Then Jesus just dunked me in. Like, just pour it all over me, man, everywhere. Right? That's what he says. Then, Lord, not just my hands and feet, but my head as well. Like, Jesus, just go for it, man. Just take that water and whoo. Right? I mean, that's Peter. I love Peter. Peter, just, you just get what you get with Peter, right? No. Yes, and everything. Right? Like, that's what happens here, right? No, no. And yes, like, and like fill that basin again. Like, that, whoo, that's got, that's got James's dirty feet in it. Right? So let's get rid of that water. You see, this is what happens to us for so many of us. We, we think that this doesn't make any sense. How can God just simply love the world so much that believing in Jesus changes everything? How is that even possible? And there's often two reactions. The one is it, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. I should, I should have to do something. I should have to earn his love. What do you mean I could just receive it? What do you mean I can just believe? What do you mean I could just turn for whatever it is I've trusted in, turn for whatever it is I've hoped in, turn for whatever it is I've believed in and turn to him? What, what do you mean that that's, that's all I need to do? We don't have anything that makes sense of that in our worlds because everything else is about how we earn favor, about things that we do, and this is about simply receiving what God is offering by turning from whatever it is we've trusted in, whatever it is we've hoped in, whatever it is we've believed in, and turning to him. We don't understand a love that's saying, I just want you to receive what I have for you. I love you just because of you. We can't even comprehend that. Well, do you want me to be a missionary after? Maybe, but that's not why I love you. Well, do you want me to give my money to mission, the, the, you know, the kingdom stuff after? Of course, but that's not why I love you. Well, do you want me to serve? Yes, but that's not why I love you. Well, why do you love me? Because I do. Because God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit live in a perfect environment, fellowship of love. And out of that fellowship of love, out of that divine nature, because God is love as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, perfectly loving each other as a triune being, out of that love overflows into our lives his love. And he says, I want you to experience what we experience as a father and I are one. I want you and I to be one. That's what Jesus is saying. Later on in John, and I want you to be able to experience exactly, exactly might be, but I want you to be able to experience in part what we experience. I want the love that we have for each other to extend into your life so that you can know what it's like to be loved like this. That's incredible, isn't it? But we say it's, it's, it's just too good to be true. And then we say it can't be for me. It can't be for me. If God only knew how dark my heart was, if God only knew the sin I had done, if God only knew where I was at, 
Frank abused his younger sister. She was two years younger than him. When he was between 13 and 15 years old, he abused her sexually. And uh, it went on for those two years. He came to his senses at some point, left the house, never to return. Having apologized to his sister for what he had done to her, the atrocities he had caused her during that time. Never spoke to his family. Having run away. And felt like he could never be forgiven even though he'd asked for it. A few years passed by and his sister was in her early 20s. And a friend of hers had shared the gospel with her. And God gripped her heart and saved her. And the first thing that came to mind is just as the father had forgiven her, now she needed to forgive her brother. It was hard. Nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew where he went. Nobody even knew if he was alive. But she worked at This is before computer days. She tracked him down. She flew to where he was and she met with him. She found him one day walking back to his apartment and she stopped him. He burst into tears and she looked at him and she said, Frank, I forgive you. I forgive you. And then she went on to explain what the Lord Jesus had just done for her and how the forgiveness that she experienced, she wanted him to experience. And when I met him years later, he told me, when she told me this, I thought, it can't be for me. This can't be true. How could he forgive me? I committed incest. How could he forgive me? I violated my sister. How could God forgive me? Surely this is for her. She was the victim. Surely it's not for me. But graciously, over the next couple of months, God worked in his soul deeply and saved him. And I have met few men like him. He never got over God's grace. He never got over God's love. He never forgot that he was a sinner simply saved by the Lord Jesus Christ ever. And then one day God called him home. And his sister gave the eulogy at his funeral. About a man whose life had been changed. You see, we often come to this moment and think, well, this is too good to be true and it can't be for me. But the gospel is gloriously for everyone. Remember Peter, douse me with water, Jesus, verse 10, Jesus answered. Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said not everyone was clean. You see, Jesus had cleansed them. The cleaning here isn't just physical water. He's also talking about spiritual cleansing. A cleansing that he'd offer the disciples, though he knows one of them isn't clean. He washed the feet of the man who would betray him in just a few hours. That's love, isn't it? He knew Judas was going to betray him. He knew Judas was going to sell him out, and he washed his feet anyway. You see, we lack a cleansing only Jesus can supply. And Jesus says, you are clean, though not every one of you. Well, when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash each other's feet. 
I've set an example to you to do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. All power his. And he acts in humility. And he serves. And note what he says. This is so important. This is the response we expect. Now that I've washed your feet, you wash my feet. And the disciples would have gotten up and Peter would have been like, James, get out of my way. Right? Well, you know, just in a, in a couple of chapters, Peter and John are going to run to the tomb. And John's going to say, this is Ethan's favorite part of the Bible. They, they ran there. said, Peter left first. And John said, but I, but I beat him. Right? And, and then he says, you know, I got to the tomb, but I didn't go in, John says. And Peter rushed into the tomb. And Ethan's like, I just love that. I love that John says, I beat Peter to the tomb, just so we all know. And he loves, Ethan says, I love that God's recorded that for all of eternity, that John beat Peter to the tomb. Um, so you know there's rivalry amongst, amongst the apostles. I mean, it, it, it's, it's in the book of Matthew where the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to her and say, what? She says, she says Jesus can one of my boys sit at your right and one at my left in the kingdom of heaven? And, and uh, Jesus says, that, can they drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say they can. And Jesus says, you will, but you don't know what you're saying. And then when the 10 hear about this, they're indignant. And Jesus calls them together and says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them with their high officials. They exercise authority over them, but not with you. If you want to be great, you must serve. And if you want to be first, you must be a slave. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for many. I mean, they thought about who was going to sit at the right and left of Jesus. Of course, if Jesus said, somebody wash my feet, there was going to be a fistfight breakout, pushing and shoving. I got his feet. You know, and then somebody goes, well, I got his toe, and, you know. What does Jesus say? Now go and wash each other's feet. I did this at the Quran a few weeks ago. Just look around the room. Just take a minute and look around the room. You can stand up if you want. Just look around the room. Go, do it. Just look around the room. Just look around the room. These are the feet you're to wash. These are the people you're to serve. This is what God has called you to. And now that I've washed your feet, you go and do the same thing. For who? For each other. For these brothers and sisters in Christ. For these believers, I brought you into this body for purpose and reason. This is what I've done, Jesus says. And now that I've washed your feet, you wash each other's feet. That's why in Philippians it says that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He was found in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, for God so loved the world that, the God, that God the Son, the second person of the triune God, would incarnate himself. That the creator would confine himself to a woman's womb. You ever thought about that? It's a beautiful reflection this Christmas. The creator confined himself to a woman's womb. For God so loved the world that he was born of a virgin. Not someone who was yet married. Pledged to be married, but not married. So everyone would think son of illegitimacy. We know what Mary and Joseph did. Though not Joseph's, just Mary's. Because God the son was placed in her by the spirit. 
For God so loved the world that God the Son was born helpless. He had to be fed. He had to be burped. He had to be held. I mean, Jesus didn't come out of Mary's womb and be like, hey, guys, I'm here. He didn't start walking around like, yo, watch this. Like, none of that happened. He was born helpless. He was incarnated, born of a virgin, born helpless. For God so loved the world that he was born, God the Son, in a stable, in a manger. I mean, barns stink. I've worked in barns. They stink. We can make our nativity scene smell as nice as they want, but that's not what a barn smells like. Animals urinate in barns. Well, they do more than that, to be honest, but it's awful, right? Barns are gross. Well, unless you're a farmer. Troy loves barns. But that's what Jesus did. He wasn't born in a palace. For God so loved the world that God the Son learned. He learned to walk. He learned to talk. He didn't know how to talk when he was born. Those are part of the things he did when you read Philippians 2, that he, he chose to set aside some of his prerogatives and rights. And he had to learn these things. That's how much God loved you. And so for God so loves the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him does not need to perish, but can have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Andrew, you guys can come up. So who is this for? Who is this for as we close off on this Sunday just before Christmas? It's for anyone who believes. It's for anyone who believes. It's for the one who's been victimized, and it's for the one who's been the oppressor. It's for the one who's lived a good life, quote-unquote, and has helped people and walked alongside of people. And it's for the one who's been incarcerated. It's for the one who helps people continually and for the one who receives help from others. Who's this for? It's for anyone, anywhere, anytime. For God so loved the world that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior would come. He would fulfill the law perfectly because every Old Testament promise would be found in him. For God so loved the world, he would never sin. Never in any way would he ever sin. For God so loved the world that he would be tired and hungry. That he would experience pain and exhaustion. For God so loved the world that the sinless Son of God would go to the cross as the Father's wrath is poured out on him so that as his life is given up, he could offer us life in him. For God so loved the world that on the cross he would defeat sin and Satan and death and he would one day vanquish them. He will into the lake of burning fire. For God so loved the world that three days later the power of the Father would raise the Son to life again again and he would be the resurrected one now and forevermore for God so loved the world that he's at work in your life right now is that not good news that's what God has done and that's what we celebrate at Christmas I don't know why anyone would want to be satisfied with God's love in a way that they experience rain and sunshine and pleasure and kindness and end there because God will grant you that kind of love. When you can be forgiven and adopted and spend eternity with him 
and know his presence every day. And who's it for? For anyone, anywhere, who turns to him. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you love the world. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. Your love for us was that great. Jesus, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you died for our sin. We thank you that three days later you were raised to life again. And God, for any of us that are sitting here today having a hard time believing this, may your spirit work in our lives and just let us know that you love us that much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.